everybody today. Um, thank you guys for coming. Um, I've got a few disclaimers before we start this. So, um, first of all, you were supposed to be getting the director of Fruitful Practices Research today. And he had a family emergency uh, over the last two weeks and couldn't make it. Um, so, my name is Jason. This is my wife, Jamie. Jamie was al- always going to be on the, on the crew up here. Um, because we use this research in our work uh, overseas uh, regularly. Um, we also had another field worker that was supposed to be with us, and we haven't heard from her, so I hope she's okay. You can pray for her. <laughs> I'm sure she is. Maybe travel difficulties. Um, so you just got us. However, we have, we have poured over this research for the last 10 years uh, with a view toward using it on the field. Um, and so there, I'll, I'll get into some of the methods and analysis of the research, but there may be some questions that you have in your mind that I'll have to redirect uh, to the director via email. So bear with me on that kind of stuff. Um, so we um, have been on the field for about six years. Um, we work in the Sahel region of Africa, in a region that's about 99% Muslim. We have around 25 underreached people groups, 15 of which have zero disciples. Um, we combine health strategies, mostly grassroots health education, um, among families and villages with Bible storying, um, and then discipleship. Um, do you want to introduce yourself any further than that? No, I'm fine. Okay. Um, I'm a general surgeon. Jamie's a registered nurse. Um, so that's, that's who we are. And, um, we'll, we'll get into a few more stories from our background as we go through some of these practices. So, um, many of you have heard that Muslims are coming to Jesus around the world, and this has been going on for um, in, in, in droves like this for maybe 10 years or a little more. And this, this team of researchers, whom, again, we are not a part of directly, um, have been working um, for 15 years, and they've been using research to learn how God is working among Muslims. Um, and trying to then make that knowledge available to others. Um, they call this knowledge stewardship. So just like we can have stewardship of our money, they envision, and we're learning these things about how God is doing this, we need to steward this well and get it out to field workers and get it out to other researchers um, so that the kingdom can keep spreading. Um, you know, we believe every, and, and the team believes that every new church in the Muslim world is a, is a miracle, a work of God. And um, we all, but we also recognize that God uses means. He uses us. He uses how we do things sometimes. Um, and so in this case, the means are the workers who are in the field who are part of this research. Um, so the team has tried to understand how is God using these, these workers, these men and women on the field, and then what can others learn from them and what they're doing. So Fruitful Practices is what's called a best practices research project. Um, meaning that they look for the best and most widely followed practices among fruitful workers. Um, and then they've done some analysis on that that we'll get into. Um, early on, and we'll go through the phases of the research, most of these workers were Western expats. But they, they recognized this and they, they then did additional phases of research that included lots more non-Western workers, which is awesome. Um, so second disclaimer is that we in healthcare when we hear evidence-based, right, we think uh, randomized control, double-blinded clinical trial, right? And so we can, and, and once there's been three or four of those, then we can base our practice on it. 
this is not that kind of research, as you can imagine. Um, it just doesn't it just doesn't yield itself to do that, obviously. Um, but uh, there are only a handful of res- of large research teams like this in missions that I'm aware of, and um, I think this is one of the best. Um, the other one that comes to mind is David Garrison's group um, looking at church planning movements. And then the last disclaimer before we actually move into the meat of the <laughs> presentation. Um, so these, again, the title says for healthcare missions to Muslims. Most of these workers were probably not healthcare workers. I don't have that number, if any of them were, what percentage were. However, I think as we go through this, you're going to see that, um, a lot of these practices, in fact, I believe all of these practices can, can easily apply to what we do in healthcare missions, just like it can to non-healthcare missions, because it's still people, right? We're still working with people. Um, okay, let's get into the methods a little bit. Um, so in 2007, there was an initial quantitative survey. They um, petitioned a group called the Vision 5-9 Network, which is a, a network of agencies. And um, so it was, it was self-response, so people, you know, people could respond or not. So there might be some bias there. It was sent to all workers who, had the, who met the criteria of having served among Muslims for greater than or equal to one year. Um, they had 280 respondents from 21 home countries, th- representing 13 orgs. 56% of those had, had already planted at least one church among Muslims. And church here is, we're not going to get into the definition of these for church, but it's a, it's a loose definition of, of uh, a, group of, a group of believers, a group of disciples who are, who are continuing forward together, basically. Um, those respondents were asked to score the statements that they had already come up with on a nine-point Likert scale. So um, whether it's a practice or a priority or whether it's an I agree type statement and went from one, never, I never do that, I've never done that, to I always do that. Um, so that's the type of survey they were doing. Um, initially, they then took a subset of that initial sample and did uh, interviews with them to further validate the statements and to see if they could glean more um, more information, additional statements maybe from those people. So there were 115 in that second group from 21 countries, and they had all, so that was the subset that, um, a, a portion of the subset that had planted churches. They published all that. Um, it's in a book that we'll, I'll show you at the end. Um, they had a conference. Um, they kept working on this. 2011, they did another round of surveys. This is when they included lots of non-Western workers. Um, I'm not going to read all these stats to you. You can um, read them. But basically, it was, it was relatively diverse, um, not obviously representing the globe of workers, but they got closer to that. And you can see that they all, you know, average ministry time was nine years almost, so that's, that's good. Um, they then again did a round of interviews based off that, kind of like they did the first time, um, and, and further identified practices, further tried to validate previous practices. I'm not going to spend too long on the statistical analysis. I'll give you just a taste so that you kind of trust us. <laughs> um, they basically took a decision tree approach, and then they, they, they took that into scatter plots, basically. And so each statement would either have high affirmation, meaning that a high percentage of the respondents said, yes, that's an eight or a nine, or moderate, meaning, you know, a, a, high, a relatively high percentage um, gave it a seven, eight, or nine, lower affirmation. Then you have no consensus. There's only one statement that, that is, was left on with no consensus, and I'll tell you why when we get to it. 
Um, and then divergent, meaning that, man, like half the people said I never do this and half the people said I always do this. And we'll discuss that a little bit, too, as we get to those. But just to give you a taste of how they were trying to analyze this. They used a bunch of software that I'm not familiar with to analyze it. Um, and so this is how the team defines fruitful practices, an activity that promotes the emergence, vitality, and multiplication of biblical ecclesias among people from a Muslim background. Now, something, um, a couple important things to point out here. Um, so the emergence of biblical churches, biblical faith communities, has been the goal of this, of, of what to study, not just evangelism, not just spreading the word, um, not just outreach, but actual churches in place moving forward. Um, the team does not claim that these practices cause churches to emerge. So they, in you know, healthcare research speak, they were not able to establish causality, right? Um, they, that would be like saying, you know, it's a mechanical thing that if you do these things, you will plant a church. Obviously, that's not the way God works. That's not the way his spirit works. Um, but at the same time, again, they're looking at the means that God is using. Um, second, of course, this is not a set of formulas to follow, so just take it with that grain of salt. Um, we, we believe deeply in these, but they are um, research, and God can do whatever he wants because he is God, right? Um, so um, they've identified a list of 68 practices, and we are going to go through those really quick, but they are categorized into eight categories. Um, and so focus mostly on the categories. I'm giving you all the practices just so you get a taste of what kind of stuff is in that category. Um, so don't, don't try to write down every category or write down every um, practice. Um, don't worry about that for now, okay? Um, so even, and a lot of these will seem intuitive, um, but the, the big question as you're thinking about this and as we're going through this today is... Um, even if you already know this is something I should do, is it something I'm practicing? Or is it, is it something, if you're not on the field yet, is it something I'm envisioning practicing in the future? Um, that's the key is, are we doing it? Are we going to do it? So the categories are relating to society, relating to seekers, relating to disciples or other believers, relating to leaders, relating to God, communication methods, fruitful teams, and characteristics of fruitful faith communities or fruitful churches. So we're going to go through each of those. So relating to society. Um, So this obviously has to do with the relationship that workers have with members of the Muslim society around them. Um, Sometimes we as Westerners don't always think of having a relationship with society because we sometimes think in individualistic terms. Um, But those of you who have been to... Most any Western cult, non-Western culture, really, not just Muslims, they're very, um, society's a big deal, family's a huge deal. Um, so when you move into one of these neighborhoods, everybody starts to form an opinion, opinion about you in some regard, whether it's um, how you talk to your wife, how you hang out your clothes, whether you sit outside your gate and greet the other men, all those things, they're, they're, they're putting you up against their standard of what a person should be, a man or a woman should be, or a family should be. Um, and so it's, it's pretty critical, obviously, that we demonstrate respect for the culture around us and that we, we think about these things. So the practices from this group. Um, so 
By the way, these are not in really any particular order. I have included the degree of affirmation from those scatter plots with each one, just so you have a sense of, oh, that's a, that's a big deal one, that's a big deal one, or, you know, that one's less confirmed, okay? Um, so behave in culturally appropriate ways. Um, address tangible needs in the community as an expression of the gospel. Um, just because it had lower affirmation, obviously that's our wheelhouse in healthcare, right? So, um, just because it says lower, don't disregard it. Um, relate to people in ways that respect gender roles in the local culture. This is huge in, especially in Muslim cultures. Um, mobilize extensive, intentional, and focused prayer. Pursue language proficiency. Take advantage of pre-field and on-field research to shape their ministry. And build positive relationships with local leaders. Do you want to comment on any of those or tell any stories about anything? Um, sure. I'll just... I don't, you can take it off. I'll just go through sort of what we've done to do these things. Um, we dress culturally appropriately. I think that's something that most people do these days um, in modern missions. Um, I wear a, we live in a country where this fabric that you wrap all around your body is the norm. Always cover my head. Always wear a skirt. Um, tangible needs, we, he said, we, we, do, we, do, we do some direct health care, but most of what we do is teaching public health. So there's a lot of needs in our country. The country we live in is very poor. There's very little modern health care of any sort. So there's lots and lots of tangible needs. There's also just people don't have food. People don't have clean water. We start with our partners. We started a well project. So meeting tangible needs has been a big way to get access to communities. And then we haven't just dropped that off. I think sometimes you can get access and then you let that go and that can be frustrating for people. Um, but figuring out ways to continue to meet those needs while you're also focusing on the gospel. Uh, and relate, one story with gender roles. So we had a woman that was a seeker. Uh, we wouldn't quite call her a Muslim background believer yet. But she had come to me and a partner of mine and asked if we would do a Bible study with her. Um, she had been had access to other people that had done Bible studies and wanted to start that up again. And we felt really, in this culture, men are the final say. And we've heard story after story of women that would meet in secret and a man would hear about it and they would shut the whole thing down. And for her, she had gone to church with somebody and the church was in the neighborhood of her husband's brothers and they heard about it and came to her home and said, either you stop going to church or we're taking, we're taking all of your children away. So she had already stopped going to church. She had already kind of gone underground, so to speak. So we just felt really strongly that she needed her husband's permission to do this. And this was a big deal because what if he said no? Um, but she, we talked about why. We talked about biblical idea of um, gender roles and then their ideas of gender roles. And she was like, no, you're right. Absolutely, I should ask him. So she did, and he agreed. And she has since been way more fruitful, way more bold. She has his protection now in a way that she never did before. So if anybody else says, what are you doing? All she has to do is say, my husband said it's okay. And that stops it. Um, so that's been a big big way that we have walked into that. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and then I want to just say something about number four, intentional, extensive, focused prayer. Um, again, as Westerners, sometimes we have a kind of materialistic, not in terms of money, but in terms of 
do this, do this stuff, um, do this healthcare outreach, um, have these materials available. Um, but uh, we often may not think about the, the battle, the spiritual battle that's going on for these, for these people's souls and for their neighborhoods and for their villages and for their region because it's been in the clutches of the enemy for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so um, sometimes we'll you know, pray for five minutes, God bless this outreach that we're doing, and then we'll go do it. Um, but we've tried to follow this and, and take a different approach of like two hours one night, two hours another night as a team meeting together, going through people's names, going through, going through things that we don't know what to do about, um, asking God to direct us, asking God to guide us. So um, that's a big deal. I just want to say deal. one thing on that. Um, even when you talk about that, I think in the West, it's like, oh, yeah, I pray a lot. We spent, when we were at the peak, we spent about seven hours a week in corporate prayer. Um, as we have four small children as well. <laughs> so, and not to tutor on horn, yeah. but just saying we, we, we had mentors that said, you, you've got to see this as part of your work. So you've got to see this as just as, just as much part of your work as suturing somebody or, or seeing somebody in consult or whatever you're doing. Um, and so that was a huge, we think, groundbreaking thing that led to yeah. this guy. I mean, this guy that led his wife study, he's, he does all the rituals, he does all the stuff. Um, and so that's one example of, I think, prayer goes right into that, too, of yeah. breaking, tilling the soil, God, God going before you. And the people, just one other number, the people that we learned that for actually spent their first three months in country yeah. spending five hours a day of prayer. Yeah. And they, at the Full-time time, job. had an infant through, I think, a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, so I think that often as healthcare workers especially, we're very focused on task. And we just got, we have got to shift that and realize that prayer is the first task. Everything we've seen in our context has absolutely been born out of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not to, again, not to toot our horn, to toot God's horn, that if you, if you ask him, just like he said in his word, he will, he will, he will do something. It may not be what you expected, but, um, okay, we're going to keep moving through these practices. Um, we're going to have time at the end after we get through the practices for a few questions, but we have some case studies at the end that we want to get to as well. So um, let me keep going. Uh, just bear with me. Are you me to talk less? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm telling me to talk less. Um, okay, relating to seekers. So people that are, um, and there's different types of seekers that we find in the Muslim world. Um, it could be somebody who hears the gospel, the entire gospel, or even just a portion of scripture, even just a verse from the Psalms or a verse from Genesis, um, and clearly comes wanting to know more or is looking for somebody that knows more about Jesus or about um, the Old Testament. Um, it could be somebody that's experienced Jesus directly in some way, a dream, a, a miracle of some sort. Um, there's lots of different types of seekers um, but it's, it's important to realize this because it, it reminds you that God works in different ways in different people's lives. And at the same time, it reminds us that sometimes things are happening under the surface in somebody or around you that you don't necessarily realize. Um, so fruitful workers are bold in witness. Um, so I don't, I'm not really sure why this one had no consensus. Um, it may have to do with people having different strategies of how they reach out, and I don't want to get too deep into methodologies, but some methodologies focus more on praying, 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 and then looking for a person of peace. Other methodologies focus on going and sharing with everybody in your clinic, every patient that comes through or everybody you see. So that may be why there's no consensus on this. Um, obviously, we can see in Scripture that the witnesses were very bold. So, And that's the other disclaimer that I didn't say yet that absolutely has to be said. 
measure all this against scripture, obviously. Okay, so um, hopefully that goes without saying. Um, pray for God's supernatural intervention as a sign that confirms the gospel. So this actually had high affirmation. Pray for the needs of their friends in their presence. So, so the workers' friends, so your, the people you're interacting with. I don't know why they worded it this way, but pray for people in their presence. Don't just say, hey, I'm going to pray for that. Um, I'll remember to pray for that, which is fine too, and we've seen things happen through that, but pray for them then and there if you can. Um, share the gospel through existing social networks, meaning... Um, you know, a, a household, um, I'm going to talk a lot more about this tomorrow in the main session, but um, a household, a neighborhood, people that already know each other, people that already have existing relationships, community together. Um, this is divergent, again, I think because of different methodologies, we try really hard to do this where we serve. Uh, begin discipling seekers as part of the process of coming to faith. Does that make sense? So, even before somebody says, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and they, and they pray to receive him, or they're baptized, or however, however you, you disciple somebody to faith, um, you're already um, expecting them to, to do the things that Jesus says to do. Um, or if you're still in the Old Testament, you're already expecting them to follow the principles that they see in Abraham's life, or um, before they've even um, committed their lives to Christ. And this can be controversial, and I think that's why it's divergent, because some people believe that, well, you can't do that without the Holy Spirit, and there's truth to that. Um, but we, we lean more toward, yeah, disciple them as if they're, as if they're on the way. Um, encourage seekers to share what God's doing in their life. So that, that's very closely tied to number five, I think, because disciples share what God is doing, um, and we, we try really hard to do this as well. Yeah, so we could say a lot about this category. Yeah. This is where we spend most of our time. Um, one, praying for the needs of their friends has been a huge, huge part of um, what I have personally seen. Women love prayer. They love to be prayed for. Men men do too, but it's really dramatic with women. Um, we have lots of stories In of that. Way. I'll tell two. Um, one is there's this group of women that we meet with regularly that are now believers that in, from the very beginning... If they might not show up for the Bible study part, but as soon as we were going to pray, they would call everybody in and everybody, wait, wait, I don't want to miss prayer. I don't want to miss the prayer part. They would, their sons and their brothers would call in prayer requests to us. They just, they saw, they saw results of their prayer. And really soon after we started meeting with these folks and praying for them, one of the women told me a story. Um, in our context, there was a tribal. state of emergency because of tribal warfare. Warfare. Yes, thank you. And the soldiers were going around collecting weapons, which is often an excuse just to go and invade people's homes and do bad things. So this group of women who have no men that live there, the, one of the main women said, let's get in my hut and let's pray in Jesus' name. And they did, and he went to every house around them, the soldiers did, and didn't go to their house. So it's just a huge answer for them, and they, they believe in the power of prayer. Re- we found really early in the process and then another story, um, we, this woman that I've already talked about that we asked her husband's permission, we, I do language with her, and people started to figure out that, oh, Thursdays is the day that the white medical woman comes. So if we come to her house on Thursdays with our sick people, we'll probably get help. So there was a baby that had a really awful disease, you could tell the medical name keep going oh, yeah keep <laughs> where going. if she's in the sun she burns immediately like no protection from that and we live in africa and that's in a 
place where they work in the fields all day and things like that. So really awful. And she looked like she'd been burned, but only where her skin showed in the sun. So Jason and I were both there, and we always pray for these people after we help them. And Jason was just overcome with just that there's not really earthly hope for this girl. She is going to die, and she's probably going to die pretty miserably. So he cried while he was praying, which for a man to cry alone is crazy. And um, to do it in prayer is even crazier. And so it was a huge group. We always attract a lot of attention. So there's a big group of women. And to our friend, our believer friend, they later they said, what in the world happened? What was that man doing? <laughs> and she, she was then able to share he believes in Jesus. And because he believes in Jesus, he loves this little girl. And he, she shared the whole gospel with this family just from seeing us pour out our hearts in prayer. This is the same woman who asked her husband for yeah, permission. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which goes to relational lines, because she's actually the same woman that led us to the group that is out in the village. Those are her, her family members. She asked us to go to, after she became a believer, she asked us to go share with her sisters that live about 30 minutes away, and they are all now believers. Yeah. Okay. So, next category, relating to disciples, relating to other believers. So fruitful workers are intentional in their discipling. So again, I'm not sure. I don't have the details on why this one is divergent. Um, I don't know what unintentional discipling would look like, but <laughs> sorry, I can't answer that. Um, disciple in locally appropriate and reproducible ways. Uh, disciple others in settings that fit the situation. So just, you know, um, if, if half your group is illiterate, you're not going to, you're not going to, Ideally, not going to have the written word. You have audio or just tell the story, um, things like that. Or, um, you know, you may not. Well, we'll get to gender roles later. Um, help seekers and disciples find appropriate ways to identify themselves to their community as followers of Jesus without imposing their own preferences. So with the worker or the, the, the existing disciple, the, the older disciple, so to speak, not imposing their own preferences on how that new disciple identifies himself to the community. Does that make sense? Nod, yes, no, okay. Um, and, this, and this can or cannot kind of go along with, as, as they're learning from the word, what did, what did those disciples do in their community, they can apply that then to their own context. And obviously if they're already... If this if this worker is is already from the same culture, they might it might be more appropriate to tell them, hey, this is what's worked for me. Um, whereas somebody from the outside coming in, it, it's I think this is more important for us coming in from the outside, um, realizing that we bring tons of baggage with us that we grew up in a certain type of church with a certain type of pew and songbook and whatever, and they don't have any of that, so they've got to um, they've got to discover from God what to do in their context. Help disciples find ways to remain within their social network. So that's related to the prior one. Um, but it has less to do with identity and more just remaining, ha- still having a job, um, all those types of things that we do in society. Um, and then encourage disciples to develop healthy relationships with other disciples. Um, model Jesus in intentional relationships with disciples. Um, so I think the difference between number one and number seven is just that 
Number seven, the, the worker is trying to act like Jesus. They, they are in their own daily life, in their own daily walk, seeing what does Jesus do, what, how, how does Jesus talk to people, what does Jesus say, and trying to model that. And I think number one is, is addressing more direct life-on-life, one-on-one discipleship between the worker or the, the older disciple and the younger disciple. Does that make sense? Um, I think we actually have some more. This is a longer set. Encourage disciples to follow the Holy Spirit's leading and applying the Bible to their own context. Encourage disciples to share their faith. Prepare disciples to explain why they believe. Model service to others and teach disciples to serve others as well. Use various approaches in discipling. So this is another one. This is, I think, the only other one with no consensus. And this one made more sense to me. It inherently entails no consensus, various approaches, right? So if everybody's doing something different, you're not going to have consensus. Encourage baptism by other disciples with a Muslim background. So the, the, you know, the outside worker doesn't always baptize everybody. You try to get the, whoever's closest to that new, new disciple to baptize them. Deal with sin in biblical ways that are culturally appropriate. So I can flip back if you're going to talk about a different one. Okay, I think this is one of the harder ones just because we really want to teach. We really want to get in there and tell them how to do things and what the right way. And then we have a vision even sometimes of what their path should look like. And it takes, we found that for ourselves, it takes a lot of intentionality to constantly go, is this reproducible? Is this contextual? Did this come from them or did this come from me? We're just constantly asking those questions. And a lot of that is in how we do Bible study. But um, one big thing with locally and reproducible, most of the women that we now work with are illiterate. And just when people started working with these folks, they used Jesus film, which is great, but not at all reproducible in our context. They have no electricity. If they have a tablet of some sort, it's quickly sold or broken or stolen. Um, so she also was using somebody with, was sitting down reading the Bible to her, and then uh, she couldn't read it. And so she just she came to us and said, I need a DVD player to share about Jesus because I can't read like you can. So we spent a lot of months, probably six months, just sitting down with her with audio. They SD cards that you stick in your phone are really reproducible. They do that all the time. So we sat down and did not bring a, the written word at all. We listened together and just practiced retelling it over and over and over again until she finally had confidence that, oh, wait, I can actually do this. This has taken tons of trial and error, and of course there's some fine lines, I think, in all of that of like, man, but we do have all these resources and shouldn't we be helping them um, with, but we're going to leave one day, and when we're gone, are they going to be able to do the things that we're leaving behind? There was something else I was going to do. One just kind of funny story, I think, about don't impose our preferences on how they identify or staying in their community We are very careful not to call ourselves missionary. We've never said that word in our context. Uh, We actually usually say we're followers of Jesus. We don't usually use the word Christian. And so just watching them figure out what that means and what they're going to call themselves um, has been interesting. But one, this one village that we've talked about, they've now begun reproducing what, what we're doing. They went to another village three hours away and did our health teaching. And they came back, and when they were sharing what they did, they actually said, we're missionaries now. I don't even know where they heard that word, but not from us. <laughs> so we didn't correct them, so it can go either way. There are other workers around. 
Yeah, they probably called themselves missionaries. But, I mean, the the big thing is just it came from them, whatever they feel comfortable identifying as. Yeah. um, And not something that we are imposing on them. And and we, we work really hard, too, to help them discover from the word how to be, how to act, what to do. Um, and not not from us. Um, so even though we are intentional, we're intentional in directing them to certain scriptures so that they can discover it for themselves. Um, yeah, again, like Jamie said, this is all with a view toward them doing them standing on their own two feet and doing it themselves. So you know, we do the same thing in healthcare in a lot of situations. Hopefully, um, in 2021 in that we, we are equipping them to then do the same thing that we can do. Um, and obviously the more complex whatever that thing is, whether it's a discipleship method or whether it's gastrointestinal surgery, um, however complex that thing is, the harder it's going to be for them to reproduce it. And in some cases that's fine. In some things, cases that's necessary. So our job sometimes is to decide what is what is necess- what what level of complexity is actually necessary for them to learn and become facile in so that they can do it. And with discipleship and and sharing and talking to other seekers, it's often not very complex. It's often less complex than we've made it in the West. Just just one thing to tie this medically, though, is we we are as cognizant of this stuff when we're developing our public health plan, though. Like, these women did reproduce our plan in a village three hours away with all by themselves. Yeah. The only resource we gave them was an SD card with recordings. Yeah. Yeah. So we 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 yeah we don't want to get too deep into that. We can later, but um, yeah, everything we do health wise, health education, we teach a few small interventions like wound care, using Tylenol. Um, we make it very very basic and hopefully very reproducible for them. Okay. So relating to leaders, so this is when you've you've. Uh, praise God, move forward with these group of disciples. You're down the road and you're actually thinking, man, this group or this church needs a leader from among themselves. Um, and maybe, in, in, but you're having a view toward that before you even get to that point. Acknowledge emerging leaders early in the process of building a community of faith. Mentor leaders who in turn mentor others. So 2 Timothy 2.2, believe. Um, you know, teach, teach those who will teach others. Um, encourage leadership based on godly character, are intentional about leadership development. So you hear that word intentional a few times in here, right? So um, often we, we go into things willy-nilly and we don't, we don't see anything. Um, obviously, again, God can do whatever he wants, but you see that intentional concept over and over. Use the Bible as the primary source for leadership development. Again, back to the Bible again and again. Prefer to develop leaders locally, so not bringing in Pastor Josue or whoever from the capital to do this stuff, you know, once a month, but developing leaders where you are um, to to do it. Um, do you want to talk about this? <laughs> no. We're early on in our yeah. process, so this is the thing we are the least experienced in. But some things that we have already put into place. Our first story that we tell is actually the parable of the sower. And our intention of that is actually about saying we are looking for this unique type of person that is... Let me stop you. As, as our first health lesson. Yes. So our first health lesson is the parable of the sower. Yeah, yeah, this is before we ever get to anything biblical or spiritual. 
Um, we say we are looking for people that are good soil, meaning you are going to learn it, you're going to do it in your own life, you're going to teach others to do it. And I feel like that sets us up already for this idea of leadership in that there is a specific type of person that's going to be a leader. Um, there was something else about that. Yes. The other thing along those lines that we try to do early on, and it, and it goes a little bit back to relating to seekers, but it has to do with relating to leaders too. We, we try hard to follow Luke 10 and find a house of peace, meaning that um, when we're in a village or in a, in a neighborhood, we want to base out of one house. And that, that's somebody usually that's already been welcoming, already wanted their family or their neighbors or their extended family, their oikos is the biblical word. Um, to know this stuff, to know the health concepts, to know the stuff about God. And so they're, they're bringing people in. And so that, that person may or may not, you have to know them better and get to know them, but that person may or may not become the leader of that, of that group in the future. So you're, you're, you're hopefully thinking about this early on. Um, you know, go ahead. One of the things we think about with this too, um, mentor leaders who will in turn mentor others, this idea to me is, is kind of contrary to the idea that I need to go to all the villages and tell all the people about Jesus. So we're trying really hard. It, I really want to go to all the villages and see all these people come to faith. But so our first kind of experience in that has been a group of illiterate women who just said, hey, my daughter lives three hours away. Can we go do the thing? They actually said, can you go do the thing that you did here? And we said, no. And so eventually they went and did the thing. And so we are now mentoring them in every week. We get together with them and go over, okay, what are you teaching this week? How did it go? What did it look like? Kind of the same way we did as a team when we first started doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I don't know if there's any surgeons or family doctors that do surgery, but, you, but it's kind of like in surgery when, you, you know, you're trying to get through the case and you've got a resident or intern with you. And you really just want to get through it and get to lunch or get home. <laughs> but you've got to mentor these people. You've got to train these people. And it's the same thing with discipleship and faith. Okay, relating to God. So this has to do with our own personal relationship with God, the worker's relationship with God. So obviously, um, we should probably talk about this one first, but because everything else flows from this, obviously, right? So if you're not in a good place with God, if you're, not, if you're having trouble trusting him about things or you're having issues with fear about things or whatever, a lot of this other stuff's just not going to happen. You're going you're gonna to find some way to, that it's not going to happen. Um, and obviously he makes amazing promises to us about this all through his word, that he will be with us, he will be with you, um, he will go before you. If we abide in him, he abides in us and we will bear much fruit, and that fruit will last. Um, and so he wants us to bear lasting fruit, obviously. He, he loves his people, he loves all peoples. Um, and so he wants he wants that to happen, and he and he knows, and we see it all through his word that that starts with us. Um, but again, as Westerners and sometimes as healthcare people, we get real worked up about the stuff we're going to do, right? And we and we neglect our own heart, and so we we can work, 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 and do all kinds of amazing stuff because we spent four, six. 10, 15 years training to do that stuff, and we know how to do that really well, and so we go into default and do the stuff, and we, we, we miss the heart part. Um, 
I think that's a common issue with us. It's been a common issue with me um, as healthcare providers. Um, so um, this only has three practices, um, but each of them are very powerful. Um, it doesn't reflect that there's a low value on that, obviously. Um, so uh, fruitful workers practice an intimate walk with God, and obviously that could be defined in a myriad ways. Engage in regular, frequent prayer. So this is personal prayer. And persevere through difficulty and suffering. And I thought it was interesting that these all have moderate affirmation. And what I think that, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know that anybody knows what that means. But I suspect that means is just like with all of us, we're all human. There's a subset of us that are over here doing this. You know, we're over here working, working, working hard. And they're being honest, I think, and saying, you know what, I don't, I don't always do that. I'm over here working. I'm over here spreading the word. If they're non-medical, I'm over here in clinic in the hospital all the time. Um, and I'm just going to be honest. I don't do that stuff. Um, I think maybe that's why it's moderate. I don't know. Just a guess. You want to talk about this one? <laughs> kind of looted. Yeah, I mean, obviously this matters. I think that the things we've seen, um, corporate prayer for me, often leads to regular individual prayer. I think sometimes we say, oh, we're, I'm praying on my own, that's enough. But I think the two actually feed each other um, really well. And it can, be, yeah, it can be difficult to find time to do, do, uh, do Bible study and pray regularly overseas, just like it is here. If you're here now and you think, well, when I'm over there, that's all going to be easy. It's not. It's harder, actually, in some ways. So develop those practices now if you're not there yet. And then just the persevere through suffering and difficulty. For sure, when things go wrong, when we've used all these fruitful practices, because this is not a A plus B equals C. If you do all of these things, you will see a movement in your place. No. But when you have intimacy with God, when those things aren't going, and it definitely didn't at first for us, we didn't see... The first village we went to did not produce disciples. And it took a lot of prayer and, God, what's going on here? And why are we here? And what's this all about? And I think, yeah, it's just a constant thing that you have to continually take it back to God and say, am I still doing what you want me to be doing? How can I reevaluate? And if the answer is yes, to continue to persevere in it. Yeah. Um, the researchers saw that when the workers experienced difficulty and suffering, it often helped them plant a church. But again, they couldn't, they couldn't establish causality on that. So they also saw that any time a worker stays somewhere long enough to plant a church, they've stayed long enough to experience hardships and difficulty and suffering. Um, and so while the two seem to be related, there's also just the, the reason you're going to this place is because they don't have the witness to Christ that they need. And so it's going to be a dark place. There's going to be bad things happening. And this is the world, this is the broken world that we live in, right? Bad things are going to happen. You're going to have hard times. And we've been through some really hard times. Um, and that, there have been times that, that that knocks out all this stuff. And whether you want it to or not, um, when, when this c- communion with God is not there because the enemy's jumped in and, and put thoughts in your head that allow that hard stuff to knock you off, this stuff doesn't happen for a while. Or it happens poorly or it happens kind of in a, in a weird way, um, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's also true that in the day and age we live, the ends of the earth are the hardest places. The places that are left that have no witness are the hardest places. You're not going to go to Kenya and be in this tropical paradise and 
just want to be buried there because it's so amazing. Like you see people long ago. You're going to go to a really hard place that has constant spiritual darkness. Going to Muslim, predominantly Muslim countries is not easy. And you're, if you don't have these things figured out or working on them or constantly going back to God, you're never going to get to that point where you see fruit. Yeah. So this, you know, this could be an entire two-hour session on its own. But. Okay, communication methods. Um, so obviously our desire is that the gospel reaches the eyes and ears of Muslims, but that not just they hear it and see it, but it goes inside them to their hearts and they, they make it their own and they, they devote their lives to it. Um, and so um, don't want to get too deep into um, communication theory or anything like that, but um, just want to point out that, you know, when we as a speaker say stuff, say things to somebody, a lot of us have heard this, whether you're heard it in seminary or medical school, and, you know, that's, in, that's kind of encoded in one way or another through your culture and your speech and all those things. Um, and then the words come out, and then they hear something, whether it's what you intended for them to hear or not, is another story, depending on how that's communicated and all the different things in between the two of you. Um, so that's intuitive, I think, for a lot of us. Okay, so fruitful workers use culturally appropriate Bible passages to communicate God's message. Communicate the gospel using the heart language, except in situations where it's not appropriate, which I think are rare, but we'll, one of the case studies talks about this a, a lot. Um, but again, if you're not familiar with that phrase, heart language, it's, it's what somebody grew up speaking in their home generally. And this gets more complicated as, as time moves on and people may speak three, four, five languages growing up. Um, but there's one, one or two of those is going to reach their heart more than the others. Um, use a variety of approaches in sharing the gospel. This is pretty similar to the discipleship um, concept. Um, Share the gospel using tools or methods that can be locally reproduced, like we were talking about with the SD cards. Um, so broadly, meaning tell lots of people. Use Bible study as a means of sharing the gospel. So this is another one that's divergent, I think, because um, some people do more of a gospel presentation um, in clinic or when they meet someone uh, very early in the, in the encounter. And some people want to engage people in the Bible study first and, and go that way. So it's just a different different approach. Share the gospel in ways that fit the learning preferences of the audience. So the you know the big example there is auditory learners or um, oral learners um, who are not used to reading everything. They're used to hearing and, and saying everything. Are aware of Islamic terms and thought patterns and use them as a bridge to sharing the biblical gospel. So again, this would be things like um, knowing Knowing the, like if you're, if you're in a society that's Muslim but doesn't speak Arabic, maybe. Um, they're often going to use the Arabic names for all the Old Testament characters. Um, so using those instead of whatever the other language that you're speaking uses, whether English or French or whatever you're speaking. Um, rather than using that name for those prophets or Old Testament characters, use the Arabic titles, Ibrahim, Adam, all those kinds of things. Um, and even more deeply than that, um, you know, a lot of people, ourselves included, use certain little snippets of, of phrases from the Quran, even um, that they will know and latch onto, um, and, and 
obviously this is divergent for a good reason because it can go it can go too far um, and that's that's between you and God and how you do things but just know that it is a fruitful practice um, how about any of those uh, the only thing I was going to talk about is the first one I think it was yeah use appropriate culturally appropriate Bible passages this um, is you have to know the culture obviously to do this and often you'll be surprised by what they they find really meaningful that we, like the parable of the sower, um, that's a hugely meaningful. I mean, people love it in our context because they plant a field every year. And They're really, all sowers, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and much. a really hard ground, and it's a really difficult place to grow things. And so it really speaks to them. But there have been other things. And just, I don't think this is what this is saying, but one comment on that is, Letting the words speak to them. So we had we have this happen all the time where we tell a story with an intention of conveying a specific point. And the point they come away with is absolutely different than ours, and we never would have brought it out, but it's really powerful. Um, Jason was doing a study with a guy, and we read the, the story of the Last Supper and Jesus sharing communion with people. And the point of that was that Jesus' blood covers your sin. He could not get past the point that Jesus knowingly ate with his betrayer. Like, he just, he kept saying over and over again, I've got to think about this. I've got to think about this. That's just, how could that, like, how could this guy betray him? And how could Jesus sit there with him? It was just so profound for him. And, yeah, it's not Jesus' blood, but it's something that God is trying to work out in his heart before he can accept the next thing. And so we do a lot of just, like, putting the passage in front of them and, trying to dig out what is God telling you through this that may be completely different than what God tells me. Um, another example, feeding of the 5,000. I was in church in the United States, and uh, somebody was talking about it and having a hard time kind of coming up with more to say about it because it's like, okay, it's just a miracle. But when I'm over there and we, t- we tell that, they are just, I mean, they, are, they know what it's like to have a house full of people and not be able to feed them. And they just kept saying, he fed them. Like, he met, I mean, they don't need more than that tangible need. And it just really, if we, if we try to bring our own cultural perspective onto it, we're going to miss the things that God is trying to teach them. And that, I think that goes back to the, our own intimacy with God and being able to hear the Spirit. Um, is when we're talking to somebody and they, they go off on what may seem at first like a tangent, because we're trying to get to this point that we came in ready to make, um, but if we listen to them and listen to the Spirit, we may see that he's, he's actually moving them in the right direction. It's just not, it's not culture the direction we would move in. Does that make sense? So that's a big deal. Okay, fruitful teams. We're almost through the practices. And then we're going to take a break. Just to tell you where we're going. We're going to take a brief break and um, stretch and then move into case studies. And I've got some, some other things for you to do. Fruitful teams. Fruitful teams are united by a common vision. This had the highest affirmation of any practice on, in the entire study over the 15 years. Um, so fruitful team, common vision. Uh, again, this, this can be hard, I think, sometimes on healthcare teams because there may be certain parts of the healthcare team that want to do certain things that have to do with their certain background or training or specialty. Um, and if, if the whole team doesn't have a common vision around some aspect, uh, then you, you may have more friction, less, less fruitfulness. It's just something to be aware of. Um, build, one another, build one another up in love. I don't know whether this one doesn't have high affirmation. 
again, it may be, maybe they're being honest, you know, and they're just like, you know what, we work all the time. We don't, we don't spend a lot of time building each other up. Um, have effective leadership makes sense, but it's surprising how often that doesn't happen. Um, and, and just real quick on that, um, I say it's amazing how often it doesn't happen. You know, sometimes we join teams when we're going to the field and we don't maybe know exactly what we're getting into with a leader. Um, so it, it's, it's helpful to do, kind of do your homework if you're pre-field um, in terms of knowing that, that person's leadership style, knowing their previous leadership experiences. I'm not, I'm not telling you to ask them for a CV necessarily, but um, just conversations and try to get a sense of how they lead and if you think that type of leadership would fit you. Again, that could be an entire two-hour session. Um, employ the various gifts of their members to serve the task, so everybody has a role to play on your team. Um, adapt their methods based on reflective evaluation and new information. Does that make sense? So the team has a plan. Maybe they heard it from God even, um, and they've got a plan, and they're moving forward in it. And as they continue to work the plan, as they continue to pray, they're realizing, hey, this, this is an issue, this piece of this plan, or this part of this plan is just not working. I mean, we're, um, and so they, they're able to reflect on that, evaluate it together, evaluate it with God in prayer, and, and adapt. That's a big deal, too. Um, have at least one person with high language proficiency in the heart language. So even if most people um, speak a trade language, then one person at least should have proficiency in the heart language. Engage in corporate prayer and fasting. Um, so that we talked about that before, a couple of different ways, but this is as a team doing that together. Um, expect every team member to be involved in sharing the gospel. Um, so this is this has a lot of bearing for healthcare missions. I think when we, if we, if a lot of us are, are highly trained healthcare professionals and we do our healthcare part, and we rely on our chaplain or another person on the team to do the outreach, the the, the gospel outreach part of it. Um, I'm just saying that the, their team found that that most fruitful teams didn't do that. I'll just leave that at that. Value their female members as essential partners in ministry, facilitating their active involvement. I'm thankful this is a high uh, affirmation because half the population, over half the population slightly is female. So um, that's extremely important, especially in a Muslim culture. Can you go back to the first? Yep. Um, we feel pretty strongly about the first one, I would say, united by a common vision. We've seen, especially younger folks, we're in our 40s, so um, younger than us, folks, when they're looking to join, to go overseas, what we see over and over again right now um, is, I don't care where I go, I don't care what I do, I just want a great team. I want a great group of people that I'm going to work with. <clears throat> That's lovely. Um, but... <laughs> The reality is when you get there, people leave. I mean, it is, it's hard to stay overseas. Things change. Like Those people that were so great then are at their highest stress level they've ever been in their life. They're not so fun anymore. Um, and all of that falls apart, and then you're left with, what am I doing here? These people that were supposed to be my best friends in my family and fulfill all of my relational needs aren't doing any of it. Are jerks, <laughs> yes. or they're gone, they had to leave, or whatever. Right, um, and you're really angry, and all of those things. But we found that if you actually go because you are excited about the vision this team has, you're ready to jump in the work, you are committed to this work that God has placed on your heart, 
Does that stuff not matter anymore? Absolutely it matters, and I love my teammates, and I have some great people around me, but not all the time. And the thing that keeps us there is not, man, what if Lisa leaves? What am I going to do? It's the work is still here, and it's what God's called me to, and even if we're doing it alone, we're going to be okay because God has brought us here. So I see that a lot right now. I think it's even in agencies, it's a very strong a lot of people are being encouraged, look for a good team fit, look for a good team fit. Does it not matter? Absolutely, it matters. But I would say this matters so much more. Yeah, because like she said, this is what, this is what goes beyond. What, what, you, what you believe God wants you to do with those people in that place goes beyond all that other stuff. Um, yeah. Okay, And Go just ahead. because I'm a woman. The valuing women. Um, A lot of times in Muslim cultures, you actually see men come to faith and women not. The opposite's been true in ours. The women on our team, we have more than we can handle. And often, Jason is the one at home making dinner because I'm in the village. So just want to encourage all of you men and women in that to... um, I know we hear all the time in Muslim cultures, it's the men, it's the men, it's the men. It's not always true. That, that's highly varied across different Muslim cultures, um, how much men allow women to do things. And thankfully in ours, it's, they're pretty free because the men are gone or dead or something they're with their other wives. Okay, characteristics of faithful, fruitful faith communities, <laughs> fruitful churches. That's easier. Um, so again, this is, our, this is our purpose and this is the purpose of, of the research. Um, these, so these churches eventually will transform their own society, send out messengers to other nations, other people groups. Um, these are expressions of God's transforming truth, power, character, and purposes. Um, again, this, may stuff, this stuff may seem like common sense, but it's not always common practice. Um, we often, again, I mentioned this before, we often don't realize the subtle ways that we influence an emerging church to develop um, in foreign and non-reproducible patterns that we unknowingly brought over almost like germs on our hands um we unknowingly bring that into the into the relationship into the new church and we don't even we don't even realize it unless we're really intentional in scrutinizing what we're thinking and what we're doing okay fruitful faith communities i'm going to say fruitful churches to make it easier (laughs) use the bible as the central source for life growth and mission worship using indigenous forms of expression um, so if anybody's familiar with the C scale, if you're not, that's okay. If you are, it's just a scale of Muslim expressions of church. So like one and two would use a non-indigenous uh, expression. Don't worry about that if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, they practice baptism. Value networking together. Um, and so the, mem- the different members of the church value networking. Makes sense. They're committed to one another as extended family Practicing the biblical one another commands. Um, so it's encouraging that this was high affirmation, even though the workers were <laughs> moderate. Um, redeem traditional festivals and ceremonies. Um, so maybe the, the various Eids in a, in a Muslim culture are somehow redeemed uh, with, a, with a Christ-centered uh, focus somehow. Uh, share meals and hospitality. Share the Lord's Supper in culturally appropriate ways. Um, so that can be difficult some places. Um, like in our setting, we can get grape juice, but it's 
gross and it comes in a shelf-stable container from France or something. And um, so um, we like to use this hibiscus tea that looks just like it and it's delicious. Um, <laughs> seek to bless the wider community again in healthcare missions. That's our wheelhouse is blessing others and blessing the wider community um, so we can teach faithful churches to do that. Involve women in culturally appropriate forms of ministry. Involve their children in worship and ministry. And this is another one that is is—it's kind of like the intern or resident with you, right? I mean, it would be way faster and way easier if you just got somebody to watch them. And sometimes we do that, um, but sometimes we take them. And it, it, it is fruitful because they're, that family's sitting there with their seven kids running around. So why not bring our kids to, to do stuff with them? Um, equip their members to share their faith in effective and culturally appropriate ways. Which makes sense. Govern themselves, which is huge. And again, we are not to this part where we have a, a church church uh, formed. Have local accountability structures for the use of funds, hugely important. Um, but I, I do have some, some relationship with a guy who's a Muslim background believer in an existing small church. Um, and they have, they have issues with this stuff because they, they long ago, before we arrived, became part of a, a local denomination that has a headquarters in the capital. And the capital will sometimes make decisions for them, this little 20-member church 12 hours away. And it's sad. Um, same thing with funds. They have to pay stuff. I don't want to get too deep into that, but this is the fruitful practice that the research found. Generally being in homes or other informal settings. Again, this is a reproducibility thing, and it's a cost thing. It's a, and it's a not bringing, hey, you've got to have a, a cool building with a cross on it if you're going to do this. It's, hey, you have a house. Why don't you meet in your house? Or you have a tree um, that you all share in your village. Why don't you meet in the tree? Um, comments? Uh, the only thing on this is the idea of in a home or other informal setting, we actually hear all the time, hey, you're coming to get do this program, why don't you build us a structure? Why don't you build us a meeting house in our village? Um, and so combating that, we, we do say no. And it, when we've met in structures outside of homes, it's way less effective. People don't have ownership. It's just, it's just a program. It's way less effective. So meeting in, we have learned that through trial and error, that meeting in homes is just way more effective. And then the... Seek to bless others outside of their community. We've, in our closest to church group that we have, they definitely feel that. I mean, they, they, it was their idea to go to this other community, and a huge part of that was they wanted to bless them with the health teaching. They wanted to tell them about Jesus, yes, but they also were like, these people have nothing, they don't know anything, they're not drinking clean water. It's, in a medical standpoint, it has been fun to see, like, them kind of also see, wow, we've our health is better because you were here and we want to share that. So the biblical stuff, for sure, we want that, but it's also, we believe they're both linked really closely. Yeah. Okay. All right, so that's the eight categories. We made it. Um, and we got plenty of time for case studies, so I'm excited about that. However... Um, you can go deeper. They've got a website. The team has a website you can go to. I'm going to go ahead and give you this in case anybody needs to leave um, after this hour. So fruitfulpractice.org. They're always working on the website. There's also four books. So this one, um, this one on the right, Seed to Fruit, was from the first consultation in 2007. Then the second one, Fruit to Harvest, was from the 2011-2013 period. And then the ones on the left are stories. And um, we're actually going to go through 
two or three of the stories from where there was no church. Um, but these are both, these are all awesome resources to go deeper with this stuff. Um, and so I encourage you to get those. They're, at least the ones on the left are in, on Kindle. I think Fruit to Harvest is also on Kindle. Not to, or on a e-reader. I don't want to push Kindle. Okay. So, I can take a few questions. I don't want to get too bogged down in questions because I do want to have time for um, the case studies because uh, I think those are really helpful. Um, if I can't answer your question, send it to this email. This is this is the the director who is going to be here would answer you probably. So any question, any burning questions or not so burning? Yes, sir. Uh huh. House of peace or family of peace. The question is, uh, when you go to a house of peace, do you do all your work out of that home or out of our own home? We we do very little out of our own home. We we do everything, yeah, out of their home basically. Um, like Jamie said, we have taken the approach in a in a village of allowing them to decide, hey, let's meet in this common area, and it was way less effective than following Luke 10 and going to a house, um, which we've also done. Um, so we we try hard to do it through a house, and then. Our healthcare outreach is usually along relational lines out of that house. So I do, you know, I do a fair amount of just basic primary care kind of stuff. And that's often, hey, my cousin has this issue. Can he come over? Sure. Yeah. Or see him next week or whatever. So do you want to speak to that or are you just coming back? Okay. I thought we were I wasn't. I'm here for questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Does that answer your question? Okay. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah, how do, how do I, as a general surgeon, find opportunities to share the gospel with patients? So what what we do now, I don't do much surgery. I do it occasionally um, near the Capitol, but we live 12 hours away from the Capitol. Um, so most of what we do now is grassroots health education, basic primary care in homes. Um, and so that's intentional so that we have time to share. Um, and so that, that's that's... That is the reason why I don't practice surgery all the time. It's so that I, so that we have time to go as a family, to, to encounter an entire family together, and so that I don't have 16 patients waiting on me that need their surgery done today so I can spend two hours or an hour with this person, with this guy, talking about something or, or going over a scripture even. Um, and so I guess... That, that's a different answer than a lot of general surgeons are going to give you. Is that well, I just don't do much general surgery, <laughs> but that's the that's the approach I've taken because uh, I just we, we decided a long time ago that's we wanted to make disciple making among people groups with zero disciples the the priority. So maybe one more. I'm sorry. I just want to anybody. Oh, sorry. Yes. Oh, the org we serve with, is it, do we raise our own support or do, do they supply salary? We raise our own support. Yeah. All right, what we're going to do now, case studies. So um, I'm going to give you about five minutes to stretch. If you've really got to use the bathroom, you can go do that really quick. 
Um, but there's also a couple of lists. You only need one of one or one of the two. They're similar. The one with the QR code, I don't know if that'll work from where you're sitting. If it does, great. It's just a basic Word document that lists the practices, so you can refer back to them. Because as we do the case studies, you're going to need to refer back to them. Okay? Um, and then the, on, the, on the right is an actual article that has descriptions with the fruitful practices. So if you want to take a picture of that for later, or if you want to download that one, either way. But in a minute, what we're going to do is um, hopefully you can get one of those on your phone or something or your friend or your neighbor can, and we're going to get in some groups and um, go through these case studies. So give you about five minutes to, to do that. Okay, I hope everybody was able to do what you needed to do. If you, if you weren't able to get the resources here, um, what we're going to do next is, if, if you're comfortable, um, we'd like to have you in groups of like four to eight. If you're not comfortable with that because of COVID, that's fine. Um, but maybe whoever you're already with, group with them, but groups of four to eight, if you're comfortable. And then what we're going to do is go through um, hopefully at least two of these case studies and um, put some of these practices into sort of into mock use, okay? Um, and so if, if nobody in your group was able to get these, um, hopefully you can remember them. Um, but we'll go over them too, so you could also just listen, even though it won't be as, it won't be as awesome. Um, Okay, any questions about kind of what we're doing right now? Okay, so everybody got somebody you can think with and talk with? If you're comfortable, COVID-wise, if you're not comfortable, that's fine too. You can, you can go solo. I'll give you a second to do that. Okay, you guys got it? Um, I'll tell you after, okay? okay. Um, all right, if you've got your group, I'm going to start reading this case study to you, so bear with me. Sorry, I have to just read to you. But um, just listen, and as you're listening, think about what's going on in this story, what's, what are some fruitful practices that are going on, what other fruitful practices could maybe be used. Um, so this is a story from that book I showed you where there was no church. Nabil reclined on a mattress on the floor with his mother and his six-year-old nephew, Ahmed. Nabil was trying to make funny faces to lighten their mood, to counteract the gloom that spilled over them as bomb blasts filled their ears. Nabil's sister, Sara, came in with a sandwich and a cup of milk for her son, Ahmed. She had mixed up the milk powder with more water than usual. Who knew when they'd be able to get to the supermarket again, or whether there would be any milk powder on the shelves when they did. Ahmed didn't seem to mind. He gulped down the milk in spite of its watery taste. Allah, Sara exclaimed as a nearby explosion rocked the building. Although many families were trying to escape the bombing by fleeing to another town, most of Nabil's neighbors had nowhere to go. Even if they did, they couldn't afford to leave. 
It was rumored that taxi drivers, the only ones who really knew the roads well enough to navigate the hazardous route quickly, were charging ten times the normal fare to drive people out of the city. That would be almost a month's salary for Nabil. Sada felt overwhelmed. She flopped down on the cushions and began to weep loudly. Pull yourself together. Be strong for the sake of the child, her mother told her. Sada sighed and sat up against some cushions, burying her head in her hands. Earlier that day, Nabil and Sada had pulled all their mattresses and blankets into the tiny hallway that led to all the rooms in the flat, the apartment. By shutting all the doors, they'd made a little room that had no windows, except for the opening that led to the kitchen. But they had covered the kitchen window with tape to protect themselves from flying glass. It was safer, they hoped, but it was also darker, and the electricity had been off for a while. Ahmed finished his sandwich and milk and reached for Nabil's mobile phone. The light that came on when Ahmed began to push buttons randomly gave Nabil an idea. He opened the door to the guest room and brought back a wooden stand with a Bible on it. He took Ahmed into his lap and showed him how to point the phone toward the words on the page. Nabil turned to the section called the Psalms of David and located Psalm 23, one of his favorites. The imagery of shepherds and sheep evoked images of the fields outside his grandparents' village. Though he'd never been to their village, he felt he knew it as well as the town where his parents had come as exiles and where he had been born. The Lord is my shepherd, Nabil began in Arabic. Sarah looked up. What is this? She interrupted. Nabil drew himself up. These are the Psalms of the prophet David. Peace be upon him. His sister propped herself up against some cushions and listened. She closed her eyes and let her mind wander to her grandparents' village, to the ancient family home and the fertile orchards. If only we could return to that paradise now, she thought. But in her heart, she knew it no longer existed. Perhaps all the houses had been destroyed by those who had driven her grandparents and the other villagers out. Or maybe settlers now occupied the ancient houses. Either way, if she ever got a chance to go back there, it would not match up with the stories her grandparents had told. For a moment, her fear turned to hatred toward those who had driven her grandparents from their home and were now trying to destroy her own generation. God, where are you? Why don't you destroy our enemies, she wondered. Nabil turned to another psalm and continued reading. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. More explosions sounded nearby. I take refuge in God, their mother fumbled, mumbled, fingering her prayer beads. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your dwelling. Sada continued to listen as her brother read from the Psalms of the prophet David. She was strangely comforted by the ancient words. For almost an hour, Nabil read psalm after psalm. Now it was dark outside, and Ahmed was asleep. His grandmother laid him gently on a mattress and covered him with a thick blanket. Even though it was the middle of summer and the weather was hot and sticky, she didn't want to put her grandson at risk to catch a cold by sleeping uncovered. Sada laid herself down next to her son and tried to rest. Nabil slipped quietly into the kitchen and filled a glass of water from the tap. His voice was hoarse from reading, but he was thankful that God had shown him a way to comfort his sister. And he thanked God that he had let himself be convinced to start reading the Bible in Arabic instead of English. What if there had been only an English Bible in their home? How much would his sister have understood? Even if she had understood the words, would the psalms in English have comforted her? And what about his mother? She wouldn't have understood any of it. Nabil thought back a few years to the time when he first started talking to Pete and Dave, the Americans he worked with, about God and the prophets and about their respective holy books. He enjoyed getting together with them. Although they were fun-loving and ready to joke, they also seemed respectable and God-fearing. They didn't fit his previous image of Westerners. So it wasn't long before he started asking them questions about their spiritual practices, such as prayer and fasting. 
He also had some questions about the Bible. Because they worked in English and his fluency in English far exceeded theirs in Arabic, these early conversations had been in English. Soon, however, Pete and Dave began to improve in Arabic to the point that most of their conversations conversations shifted into Nabil's language. One day, Pete and Dave introduced Nabil to their friend Terry. He wasn't in the country for a long visit, but he and Nabil hit it off, so they spent a lot of time together. They visited each other and had long conversations about Jesus over thick Turkish coffee and then read the Bible together. Since Terry spoke no Arabic, they always read from the English Bible and spoke English together. Nabil loved Jesus, and he loved reading about Jesus and the apostles in the Bible. Eventually, his love for Jesus grew into a desire to serve him, and Nabil began to count himself as one of the followers of Jesus. Nabil was well-respected in his workplace, and many of his friends and co-workers were eager to hear what he had to say about his encounter with Jesus. After about a year, one of his close friends, Sami, also decided to become a follower of Jesus. Together, Nabil and Sami would invite their friends to meet together on their day off to read the Bible and discuss what they read. Nabil thought back to one of those early meetings. A group of young men was lounging on low couches around the guest room in Sami's family home. Sami's wife had made them coffee and then had left them alone to study and talk. He remembered how he had taken his treasured copy of the Bible out of his briefcase. He had opened up the Bible and read a passage from the good news of Matthew. Don't store up treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths. Then the group launched into a discussion of the passage in Arabic. Their discussion had been fruitful. At least his friends were thinking about the teachings of Jesus and asking questions. Later, Nabil told Pete and Dave about the success of the meeting. They were really encouraged. But then, as he pulled out his Bible to show them a verse the group had discussed, they realized that Nabil had been reading the Bible only in English. Why English, they asked. Is there anyone in the group who doesn't speak Arabic? Nabil told them he felt it was more prestigious to read in English. And that was the language in which he himself had first encountered the Bible. Then Dave challenged him. Don't you think it would connect with, your, with people's hearts more strongly if you read the Bible in Arabic? Nabil was open to the idea of holding their meetings only in Arabic. The next time the group met, as they finished their coffee, he glanced up at the Quranic verse framed on the wall opposite him. God is the light of the heavens and the earth, it read in beautiful Arabic calligraphy. Nabil was suddenly confident that God could reveal his message in Arabic as well as in English. He prayed for God to guide them as they listened to God's revelation, this time in Arabic. For the first time since the group had begun meeting together, Nabil picked up the Arabic Bible from the table in front of him, opened it, and read the passage to be studied in Arabic. To his surprise, he found that more of the young men were participating, and they seemed to grasp the message better. He even noticed that they seemed to be interacting with the issues they discussed from their heart rather than just from their minds. What do you think about only reading the Bible in Arabic, he asked the others after they had finished the main part of their discussion. One member of the group spoke up. When you read in English, it was confusing for us. Sometimes we didn't understand what the passage meant. Another said, we didn't understand why the, why the Bible had to be read in English. We didn't know why English was better than Arabic. Nabil then realized that communicating with his friends in the language of their heart was essential to helping them grow in faith. The sound of an explosion nearby brought Nabil back to the present. He finished his glass of water and went back into the hallway where he found his family asleep. Let them sleep, he thought. Nights are the worst for bombing and they will be awake soon enough. He carried the Arabic Bible and its stand back to the guest room. He was glad that Pete and Dave had encouraged him to read the Bible in Arabic with his friends. The whole family slept late into the next day, having been awakened several times in the night by bombing. They were out of coffee anyway, so it was just as well that they slept through the early morning coffee time that Nabil loved to share with his sister. With the music of the famous singer Fairuz playing on the radio and the rest of the family just waking up, their morning coffee time 
usually gave Nabil and Sara the chance to confide in each other. On this particular morning, Sara put together a breakfast with odds and ends. She hadn't been out to buy vegetables in a few days, and what she did have was starting to wither in the summer heat. Perhaps if Nabil went out today. After breakfast, Nabil decided to go by his workplace to see if anyone was going to be at work that day. He called out at the gate and exchanged greetings with the old guard who came shuffling out of his shelter. It seemed no one had been there since the bombing started. God help us, the guard exclaimed and went back into his shelter. Nabil left and went to the apartment of his friend Sami. Sami greeted him with kisses on both cheeks and led him into the guest room where his wife served them coffee. Since Nabil was a close family friend, she remained in the room, exchanging news and asking about Nabil's mother and sister. Sadr was really shaken up by the bombing last night, Nabil confided. Nabil turned to Sami and said, I read to Sadr from the Psalms, Psalms of David. It was really comforting for her and for Mama too. Do you remember how we used to read the Bible in English at our discussion times? Sami nodded and laughed. Nabil went on, I'm really glad that we started reading the Bible in Arabic with our friends. That experience made me realize that the message of God needs to be in the language of their heart, and that's especially true with our families. Sami's wife excused herself and went back to her household tasks. As she left the room, Sami motioned in his wife's direction. I've begun to read to her from the Injil every night. That's the New Testament, he whispered. Nabil looked up on a high shelf at the Arabic New Testament that Sami had placed on an ornate stand. A lamp was positioned above the stand, and Nabil, Nabil knew that had there been electricity, the light would have been shining on the holy book. Nabil responded to his friend, It's good for her to hear the words of the Injil at the same time as she sees the signs of it in your life. Nabil paused and thought of his own faith journey. Then he continued, My family has definitely seen the difference in my life that has come from following our Lord Jesus. I was never very religious as a youth. In fact, I'm not really religious now in terms of outward practices and habits, though of course I still pray and fast. But they can see that I am serious about obeying God. My mother even said that I seem more like her son now than before I believed in our Lord Jesus. It's true, Sami confirmed. They can see the spark in your life. Then he went on, Do you remember when you first began following our Lord Jesus and you were really outspoken and telling people about him at work? For me, I'm like that with my own family, but for those in my clan, I'm taking it more slowly. Is that because your clan is a bit more traditional? That you still make decisions as a group? Sami nodded. I'm just doing subtle things like putting that injil up there. And I'm sowing seeds here and there, sharing about our Lord Jesus little by little, until there are enough people to decide by consensus to follow him. And most of them don't know English. I could never reach them without using the Arabic in Jil. By the way, Nabil asked, does your family know English? Nabil meant Sami's, Sami's wife, of course, but out of politeness did not refer to her specifically. Not a word, Sami replied. My wife is very smart, but she didn't finish her, ex her education. And my children also do not know English. Not yet, anyway. Oh, Sami interrupted himself. Let me show you something. He went out of the room and came back with a box of, of cassettes. This story's a little dated. These are the stories of the prophets, peace be upon them. They aren't in our dialect, but we can understand them. I love that they use our traditional music, too. When I first heard these stories, I said, this is our language. This is our message. This is not a foreign message. I listen to them in the car as I travel for my job, and I feel so close to God when I listen to them. Eventually, I will let my family listen to them. Nabil's eyes lit up. I would love to listen to those stories. I really like some of the cassettes I got from Dave that have some inspirational prayers and messages about the Injil, but I think stories of the prophets would be useful for my family. Sami and Nabil enjoyed a long discussion. Finally, Nabil got up to leave. I promised my mother and sister I'd try to find some vegetables, he said. As Nabil was leaving, Sami's wife handed him a black plastic bag with a bunch of locally grown bananas in it. These are for little Ahmed, she said. God bless your hands, he said. After a prolonged leave-taking, he continued on his way through the neighborhood. He brought some tomatoes, cucumbers, and potatoes for an exorbitant price, then ducked into a supermarket ran by a 
run by a family friend. I'm going to stop there. The rest of it is just details about the vegetables he picked up. Okay. <laughs> so, um, talk amongst yourselves for about two minutes. We don't have a ton of time. Which fruitful practices did you notice in this story? What did you pull out of it that Nabil and then later Sami were doing? Next, in what sense? What do you think? Okay, I'd, I'd love to just, if you can kind of quickly, I meant to tell you this before, quickly kind of appoint a spokesperson, and we're not going to have time to hear from every group, uh, but we'll try to get around the room a little bit. So, somebody brave enough to willing to raise their hand and share what their group said, what are the fruitful practices you gleaned out of this story? Anybody? Uh, you could. That one's uh, hands-free. Yeah, that's a good idea. Anybody want to share? 
There's no, there's no wrong answer, probably. Just kidding. Um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of other, other people thought of this one too, but just, um, they mentioned the cassette tapes, which kind of had two purposes, because they mentioned that they used their uh, cultural music in the cassette tapes, which is going to impact the, the listener more. Um, and then they did mention um, the preference of their learning style was one of them, and he commutes and drives, and so that's a, a good opportunity for him to get into the scriptures while he's commuting, so it's a little more efficient for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Somebody else? Ready? Got one way in the back. Run, run, run. <laughs> I'll be brave here and tell you what our group said. So the local language, they, they, as the um, Dave and the other guy became more proficient, they started communicating in Arabic versus English, and then they switched over to the reading in Arabic, also that they were meeting in a home um, weekly, or sounds like weekly, um, to, to study the Bible. Good. Good. Maybe one more. Ready? Here, Jamie. <clears throat> uh, so our group noticed that the entire story pretty much was one of reproduction. So even after the Western workers were departed, it was the local believers who were doing the work of sewing. Uh, and then obviously the big emphasis on the heart language uh, was there in the story too. And we thought it was interesting to um, the mention of like sort of waiting until enough clan members uh, were believers in Jesus so that they could decide by consensus yeah. to follow him. And as Westerners who are uh, in a lot of ways raised to be individu- individually uh, minded, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how you could follow Jesus by consensus. Yeah. Um, but we like looked at some relevant scriptures on that too. And I uh, think that that's just a tension for Westerners to, to rest in and trust mm-hmm. God for. And it's so hard if there's one if there's one person that seems ready to follow Jesus or ready to make any, you know that commitment to say just just wait a minute wait for the rest of your family. Uh, it's it's very difficult and and maybe maybe you don't have to wait for them to be saved but you might wait for them to do some of these things that we've talked about until. In deference to not in deference to their family, but but giving the rest of their family time to to move forward. Great, great. Okay, next question. Um, okay, you might have to think back a little bit. I hope I didn't read it too fast. When and how did Demille's process of becoming a disciple of Esau Masih Jesus begin? Discuss. So we'll give you two minutes. and choose questions. Can you give him more time?
Okay. Let's hear from another two or three groups that haven't told us their thoughts yet. Somebody, a new, new group. Not all at once. Anybody? When and how did Nabil's process of becoming a disciple of ESLC begin? Absolutely no right answer for this, because it's God. Go ahead. Um, I think there were two Westerners that he was, I can't remember if they started with a Bible study or if it was like starting with coffee or something, but just kind of hanging out with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just remember it started with him having more and more love for who Jesus was about what he was hearing about and then that transitioned into him having a desire to actually serve. So, yeah, mm-hmm. give his life to him. Yeah. yeah. And it was also that the, within their cultural context, they were respected men that actually mm-hmm. made him desire to want to get to know Yeah. Him. He actually said they were different from other Westerners that, that he had met. They could tell the difference, or a difference. Um, yeah, excellent. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's do, let's do this one. Let's do the next one. So what examples are there in this story of the gospel spreading through Nabil and Sami's social networks? They're oikos. So what are the... How did that how did that happen for these two families? Discuss.
Okay, sorry to cut you off. Hopefully you've gotten some kind of answers. What examples are there in this story of the gospel spreading through Nabil and Sami's social networks, their oikos? Anybody? Here you go. Um, hello, can you hear me? Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, something that I kind of was reminded uh, in our discussion, um, when I was in high school we had uh, a Muslim exchange student um, with our, um, with, in our home. And uh, one of the things that he had a hard time with uh, in coming to faith is how Christians will treat the Bible. Um, meaning like if a pastor was to get up on stage and start talking, he would oftentimes like, fold it backwards and curl up the pages a lot and mm-hmm. kind of shake it around a lot. Mm-hmm. And for him, that was really difficult mm-hmm. because we it was almost as though we did not seem to hold Scripture very reverently. Yeah. Um, and then like in a Muslim home, you know, like we were talking earlier, they would put it like in the highest place in the house and would almost hold it like a box of explosives, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I just find that very, you know, Kind of in this type of culture, you know, for as an American, I would probably never pay attention to that. But, you know, in a Muslim culture, they may. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. Everybody get that? What are you saying? Okay. Good. All right. Examples of the gospel spreading through their social networks. Uh, one way would be how uh, their family members are able to see a transformation in their lives. Uh, and then... Uh, that facilitated conversations and the ability for them to, to share their faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe one more. Let me get one more set of questions and we'll be done. Yeah, um, this story showed a couple of great examples of both Nabil and Sami sharing with their families just through letting the Bible do its work. I mean, it's not like they were sitting there presenting the gospel. They just read from the Bible over and over, and it was comforting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and, and in particular, I'm I'm reminded of Nabil, bombings going on. He's not not telling his sister that Jesus died for her sins at that moment. Hopefully he gets that later, but he's, he's reading Psalms of Comfort. Because uh, that's what fits that moment. Um, good, good, good. Uh, okay, I think this will be our last set of questions. This is a little meatier. Um, meatier. What do you find challenging in this story? How can you help encourage the spread of the gospel within social networks? And in your situation, or in the situation you hope to be in, maybe? Uh, or among your, if you have colleagues who are... Um, not native English speakers, is use of a trade language or foreign language instead of the heart language impeding the spread of the gospel. So you can focus on any part of that that you want. Um, but discuss.
can't see what that says. What is that? She's, she's holding up a sign to me, and I can't read it from here. Maybe. Probably. I know. I'm going to have to be careful not to squint tomorrow if they have bright lights on me. I'm just like... Okay, again, sorry to cut you off. Feel free, spokespeople, to answer one of these or two of these or three of these, whatever you guys talked about. So, we'd love to hear from you. Who's first? Just saying here, I don't want to hog the mic, but um, the the most challenging part of this story to me as a female is it's a story about how the men were kind of involved and as, particularly as a single female reaching out to Muslims knowing often the women are not single or they're under the protection of the man and like how how would this look like just, you know, I have a challenge kind of seeing where I would fit in in this story, so... Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started, and, and this is the only one we'll get to. I'm sorry. I, sorry, I chose a story that only focused mostly on the men, but um, those stories are out there. I mean, he's moving in their hearts just the same. Um, and again, it, it depends on the context. Um, where we where we work is very different from a Afghanistan or a Yemen, um, where 
women may or may not even be able to leave their homes, you know. Um, but, I mean, where we live, like Jamie said, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and where we live, the, the, the family structures are often broken. So, again, men are dead or men are off in the desert looking for gold or they're spending all their time at another wife's house or um, they're in the capital working for months on end or another country working for months on end. And so they're, they're basically single moms, single, single women almost with families who still have some sort of obligation, but it's often, it's often the man that's, a, that's around. It might be a, a brother um, who may or may not really care what's going on. He may take that responsibility seriously. He may not. Um, so it's just, it's so, so contextual. But just, again, sorry to, sorry to pick a story like that, but please be encouraged. It, it is happening. And uh, just look for those stories. There are entire books devoted to stories of God working among Muslim women. So if you look for those, you'll find them. Who else? I was just, I was going to say one thing about single women. We have a single teammate who's also a surgeon who doesn't practice surgery, but she finds that as a woman in healthcare, she has a lot of access that other women wouldn't just because of the status of her job. So um, just to repeat the question, it says, in your situation, is the use of a trade language a, a hindrance? And I think that it depends on where you go, because some places they sit at your feet as Americans and they want to learn the English language. So you can use that as a tool. And then again, in other places like where you guys are, we kind of have to adapt to their culture more and their language more. But there are places that I've been where I've used the English language as just that teaching English as a second language and integrating Bible and the gospel through that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody get that? Um, yeah, that's so true. Um, a lot of the men in my neighborhood want to speak French to me, but when they think about faith and they think about God, they don't think about that stuff in French. Um, and so absolutely it's an access point if they want to learn English or they want to learn, they want to talk to you in the trade language, but, um, when you go deeper with them in faith, and it's hard because you may have to learn two two or more languages, um, but you may need to turn a corner depending on how depending on the person. You know, some people can can are good enough in that trade language to think about faith and those kinds of things. But good, thank you. Someone else, we've got room, maybe one more. Okay. Yeah, I just um, one of the things that came up is for our group, my, my personal experience is um, working with a people group who still don't have a translation of the scriptures and how important the Wycliffe folks are in, in doing that and trying to do medical work where you've got to go from tribal language to Spanish to English um, and trying to bridge the gap personally, you know, trying to get as immersive as possible in Spanish in my current context and all that, but then still you're going from a tribal language which is completely unrelated even to Spanish. Um, and so some folks are growing up speaking Spanish, speaking both languages, and so Spanish can be a heart language for them, but other folks, they don't, they don't speak any Spanish at all. And, um, and so how to, even, how to even find the words and say the words and how those 
key members of the team are these people who speak, who, who grow up speaking both languages, and they become mm -hmm. these, like, just people you couldn't function without, both medically in the mission field and um, with evangelism. And so how, uh, um, and that, that's something, that, that's an that's a issue that we're facing, and uh, it's the overcoming it sort of, but it's a slowly, and it's just, it's like, oh, how much easier would it be if we had a Bible in Shipibo? You know, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he's, uh, did I get that? Um, so just when you're in that transition period when there's not, the scripture's not yet in their heart language. Um, and so Sill or, or Wycliffe can be a huge resource. And if you have those in your country or where you're going, if you're not there yet, don't, don't worry about this stuff if you're still pre-field and you don't know what we're talking about. That's fine. Um, but if you're there, reach out to those people. They will, I mean, the people in our country, not for us specifically, but they've done health booklets for other people. They're awesome that we've used. Um, and then as you're, you kind of alluded to this, I think, as you're, as you're working with people, people that know the heart language and the trade language, especially if they're showing any interest in helping you and, and maybe whether it's a spiritual seeker or not, um, I've got a guy that's, I mean, he's sort of a seeker, kind of. I've really been working on him, but he helped me a ton getting our stuff into the local dialect. Um, so that's a huge deal. Um, we're out of time. Thank you guys so much for coming. I hope this has been helpful. Um, I've got I, I've got maybe two minutes uh, to be up here, um, so I could answer another question or two if you have something burning. Um, otherwise, you can email these guys about their broader research. Yes, and this survey. There's a survey on your phone, I'm told. I don't know much about it other than that you're supposed to do it. Is that, is that it? Is that fine? Okay. Okay.